I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, this is Kristen Walker and I am here with someone who's been on our show before, Amy O'Neill. And um, we've got an awesome topic that is also really serious and my gosh, does it need more attention than it's getting. So I just want to say thank you first to Amy for you want to do this topic with me today. I really appreciate you coming back on, Amy. Oh, I am so glad to be here, Kristen. This conversation could not be more important and timely with everything going on in our nation. Absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners, just anyone that doesn't, uh, didn't listen to your first show, just a little bit about your background and what it is that we're going to get into today. Sure. I am a uh, Boston Marathon bombing survivor. One of the things that has happened for me over the last six years is I've been on a little bit of a mission regarding the topic of resilience, having learned about trauma and victimization through being a mental health professional and then living through trauma by being in direct line with the second explosion at the bombing. So the learned and lived combination of trauma and what happens to one when you are involved in such a situation and the ultimate healing journey has been an incredible experience for me. And, you know, as you know, with so many incidents of mass violence that have happened in our, in our country since the marathon, there's a whole lot of wounded people and this yeah. conversation couldn't be you know, more important than it is right now. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we have an anniversary on Valentine's day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tomorrow Valentine's day is sadly the anniversary of the Parkland, Florida, the Marjorie Stoneham high school, um, devastating shooting. That was just one year ago tomorrow. Yeah. And that's why we're going to rush this show because listeners were actually recording this on Tuesday, the 12th. We were going to do it over the weekend and then, you know, schedules change. I ended up having to help a friend with an emergency and, but I was like, we have to figure this out. So Amy and I like worked miracles with our schedules to make sure we could get this done in time for me to rush it through editing and get it aired on the 14th. Right, right. 
So, you know, and you know, Amy, and our listeners know that I've had this initiative where um, I interviewed even someone that you referred to me that also is a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, And I have a big initiative going on about online bullying and trolling and what you are doing with your work is so near and dear to my heart as well. And one of the reasons it is, is because it's a different world today with social media (laughs) and the internet and what's what's considered newsworthy and what's going to grab a headline that 20 seconds later no one cares about and yet you have all these people whose lives have been changed forever but they're no longer a headline and it's it's disturbing to me that this happens you are hitting on a really important point when we talk about the media and social media when it comes to incidents of mass violence there, there have been some situations where people were sending out on Twitter or on social media um, in, information about incidents before law enforcement and the appropriate parties are really in there trying to figure out what's yeah. happening. So that's one arm of what's happening with the media and social media. And the other um, factor to consider is how even uh, media, meaning newscasters, are also secondarily traumatized because of what they're being exposed to and experiencing in these situations. Yes. And also, I mean, that's so great that you say that too about newscasters, because boy, do they get a bad rap and some of them deservedly so. But yes, they're on the ground too for these things and witnessing firsthand, just like the first responders that are there as well, uh, and as well as everybody that, you know, is a participant or at a school or doing a marathon or whatever, there's all this trauma that's going on. And you've got this one side of it where social media and the internet gives us a bird's eye view of what's actually happening. It help, it can help save lives. It can help keep people accountable to what really happened. Um, you know, there's a good, really, really good piece to it. And then there's the, dark side of it too. Yeah, there's absolutely a, a good piece that keeps people informed. I mean, if you look in the, at the case of in Boston, when they were hunting the Sarnoff brothers, when they were looking for them by putting them out on media and social media, it really aided in the ability for people to come together, to work together, to find them and capture them. But on the other hand, when you talk about people being unprepared for information, yeah. I'm not sure how helpful it is for other people that don't need to be exposed to so much drama and what they're seeing. And I'm not sure of the ripple effect of the anxiety that that also causes and how we're saturating ourselves. Um, it's a really delicate balance between getting information, being aware, understanding, being compassionate, and also needing to how much is too much, what's intrusive, what's helpful, what's hurtful. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And it's something we've got a podcaster on our network um, that does the social networking effect, and he's been studying social media and its impact on society and our mental health for eight years. Oh my gosh, that is going to be incredible information because long I before think about that. Yeah. yeah, 
long before anybody, t- I actually got him. Well, I didn't get him. I introduced him to uh, a v- huge venue in mental health and he, they offered him a speaking gig there. And at the time they did it, I think it was two years ago. And some of the counselors in the audience literally got angry and started arguing with him over the facts. Wow. Wow. You know, it's so interesting. You talk about social media and this gentleman and you things that people put out on social media, for example, Boston strong, Parkland strong, Vegas strong. That's a pretty common slogan you see after a community that's been tragically impacted. There are a large number of victims across many communities that talk about that slogan and how difficult that makes their journey. It's, It's an implication that you need to be strong and you have to be able to handle this stuff it's so massive to handle, to hold, and to carry. It takes so much time to dissect it and go through it. And these messages that are coming out at people, they sometimes I feel that those messages may be very helpful for a community, but not necessarily helpful for the victims, right? So yeah, community-wise and nationally, that journey to recover recovery, I think is very different from the more intimate experience of having been through something. Agreed. Cause when you, even when you say those words, you know, Boston strong as someone who has had significant trauma in, you know, in my life and early childhood, and then, you know, later in life as well, and has definitely dealt with mental illness off and on throughout my life, that to me immediately felt feels like pressure. Yeah, it does. It is pressure. One of the areas that I have been talking about with my work on resiliency is that strength, I believe strength helps us survive. Strength is survival. We survived our, our natural strength came up. It rose up in us and it got us out of a situation or it helped us in that moment to survive But the actual resilience or the working through of something isn't about bouncing back and being strong. It's about having to go through something. And when something you experience changes you so deeply in the core of who you are, you can't out... (laughs) You you just can't out-rebound it. You have to go through it. And that strength sometimes means being really vulnerable and human. Right. Exactly. It's seeing that word strong. I mean, I'm, you know, people like to mince words with words and meanings and so on. I think it's more the, the connotation that specific ways that words are thrown together um, puts out to the public for them to understand what's gone on. But yes, they do a disservice and make it harder for someone who was in the situation. Because if you're quote unquote, still grieving, if a year later, two years later, four years later, whatever it is, or you're still having this, or you're still, and I'm putting still in quotes, Mm -hmm. again, that's this pressure of you're supposed to be over it already. Yeah, that is very, very true. I think that 
that conversation happens frequently. I know from the survivors that I've come in contact with from multiple different communities, from various attacks from national to international, um, that still word is really interesting. And I think if we can make a list of things never to say to survivors, <laughs> they would include, the, that would be one of them. Oh, you, you know, oh, that still bothers you or um, you're probably so lucky to be alive and you live your life so much differently now. I mean, people say that yeah. within like five days and you're, yep. you're still numb. You're still numb. You haven't even come back to life yet. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the shame that ends up and actually the shame that ends up coming with feeling not strong because right. I think there is so much messaging about being strong, but I also think there's a, a incredible loneliness that is very, very hard to under, to describe to people and to have them understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's this, um, there's all this for me, what I see this revenue engine that goes into activities around maybe well-meaning activities, even um, around creating nonprofits and creating more news stories and creating initiatives uh, around an event that took place. At some point, some of these things turn into a revenue stream, and then it isn't really about the people that it was originally designed for, because this initiative is, you know, has funding supporting it. It's now become a corporation. Does that make sense? It does. I, I'm. I don't know as much about that end of things, the business, the revenue producing end of things as I do about just the, the, the confusion and the not really knowing how to commemorate anniversaries, right. you know, it, it, anniversary has a, has a positive, it's our anniversary. Let's celebrate. Right. It has a positive connotation to it. And I don't know what the right word is. I know there's been a lot of discussion through all different communities sort of handle that differently. Um, but the way that people commemorate attacks is, is absolutely not one size fits all. No. Some families may want to come together. Some families may want to be alone. Some people may want to be nowhere near a breakfast with the governor. And right. some people may, may feel like that makes them be seen and heard and acknowledged. So that's one of the really difficult parts about a traumatic event is that there is no one size fits all for yeah. how to go through it. You know, my therapist actually said the most, one of the most profound um, two words I've ever heard. I was going through a really rough time and it was around time of year that there was something that happened that was extremely traumatic because I'm sorry, it lives in your body, you, you know, the anniversary date that comes up. She said, oh, well, you have event trauma. Hmm. And I was like, oh, my, thank you. Thank you. Right. Yes, that's what's going on. It gave me this tangible 
you know, thing that I could say, that's why I'm feeling this way, even though that event is not actually, you know, happening in my life in terms of that it just happened. It, but my body is remembering that it happened. My psyche is remembering that it happened on the anniversary date of when it happened. And why am I feeling so awful? And what is going on? Am I crazy? Like all those things that you go mm-hmm. through. And when she said just event trauma, I went, oh, Okay. Yeah, right. Just having an understanding of 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 what what could be happening. I mean, and you're you're hitting on such a hugely important point, which is being connected either to other survivors mm-hmm. or being connected to professionals that really understand the impact of what your trauma is. You're right. Your body um, this is not my quote. This is a Bessel van der Kolk, the title of his his pretty famous book. Body keeps the score. Yeah. And what an incredible title, right? I mean, it, 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 it captures exactly what you're just sharing, which is your body absolutely keeps the score and it's going to react at certain times a year with certain smells, with certain stimuli, with certain sounds, um, depending on what it is that you've been through. So when you're talking about your town is making a, you know, a breakfast with the governor and a this and a that, and your body's an event trauma, you you may not want to be a part of something like that. On, exactly. on, and that's okay, too. And then, you know, there are people, you know, let's, you know, when we talk about the students that, um, you know, went right in your face, in our faces about the Parkland School shooting and were going after advertisers that were supporting the NRA and, you know, they, they made huge changes. They deserve to have a voice and the way that they were attacked for what they were doing after they were the ones that were there while this was happening. Just, I was shocked. I was shocked at how many radio shows that I was asked to be on and to comment on these millennials that are just shouldn't be talking about blah, 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 from people that are my age. And I, it took everything in me not to just say, why did I get invited on this? Like, this is not the, sh- who put me on this particular show? Cause clearly this is not one I would want to be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so complicated because the individual experience of any victim is owned only by that victim. Yes. And if that student wants to stand up and talk about gun control or how they feel about what they just went through, that is theirs to own. I, I don't know. I don't know if any of us have the right to ever tell another human being if that's what feels good for them or if that what makes them feel less less um, disempowered in that moment, who are we to say that that's not good for them? I think it's really tricky from a trauma perspective. And again, there's no one size fits all for experience or recovery. So when I saw these young people speaking up in Washington and at marches and across media outlets, the only thing I was thinking of additionally to what they were saying is I'm hoping that there's a whole cocoon of people around them that are keeping them emotionally safe through these experiences. 
Right. Because they not only were dealing with the trauma of what happened, but then they also were dealing with the backlash from some about what they were talking about happened. Right. Right. And I don't, it's so interesting to me. I mean, you mentioned the internet trolls and the the media that people that do this, it is, I have zero understanding of why people get pleasure out of that. It, it, it completely blows me away. I mean, when you think about what these, I'm a parent, I have two teenagers. When, when I think about with these children, how these are faced going into school buildings, we would like to think that this cannot happen to me, but the reality is we're all kind of, nobody's immune. We're all vulnerable to a certain degree. And It's really hard to, it's hard. It's why, it's why I didn't, you know, I, it, it is why I did not get on YouTube with my show until just late last year, because I was like, I do not want to deal with trollers, comments, negative stuff. I don't even want to deal with it in terms of you know, yes, you can set up YouTube to where you have to approve all comments. I didn't want to have to go through reading the crappy comments to know, oh, this is one I'm definitely not going to allow to be posted publicly. And I didn't want to assign that task to anyone on our team to have to deal with that either. It's like, which one of you has no empathy? Doesn't exist in this company. Uh, you you get to be the lucky one that deciphers whether a comment, you know. It, but we did it anyway because the argument went back and forth between all of us, and it was the importance of of what we're trying to do is reach as many people as possible, and YouTube is a place where that that you know that that it can reach more people. So we made a decision to go ahead, but it's been it's been. Um, not fun and tra- and traumatizing in its own you know way reading some of the things that people will comment about on you know I'm interviewing someone who's been in one of these tragedies or I'm interviewing someone about being sexually abused or I'm you know and and some absolutely sociopathic response is is commented on about this interview that took place. And I just think, Oh my God, who are these people that do this? Yeah. I don't understand that behavior. It's incredible that people do that and that there's so much blaming and shaming and, and denial and complete refusal to acknowledge some of the things that are happening in other people's lives. And whether we understand why somebody's traumatized or somebody isn't traumatized, I mean, we can put two people in the same situation and one may be traumatized and one may not be traumatized, but that depends on who they are and what they've already experienced and what their body's already holding from their lifetime. Absolutely. Right. We know that a hit that somebody with a history of, um, adverse events. There's that, the tool, the ACEs, the history of um, adverse childhood events, how that yep. impacts somebody's ability long-term to continue to come through events that are challenging your body's ability to continue to fight and reset itself over time. So there's there's no 
person out there who's allowed yeah. to judge what that limit is for any other human being. That's exactly right. That's so right. I, I did a show with a, a Dr. Ned Hallowell, and he's um, he's a podcaster now. His show is called Distractions, and is very well known, bestseller, you know, New York Times bestselling author, all that. Um, about ADHD, which I have. And uh, he's lovely. He's so wonderful, you know, to deal with. And he, he had written a book about his, um, because I come from a crazy family was the name of his book. And he talked about that test and, uh, and I had just taken it. And we both were an eight, which <laughs> that is right. so high. Like that's, right. A scale of one to 10 and your adverse childhood effects are at an eight, that's high. So in, for me, because this is so unique and I'm no example to how someone else should deal with trauma, I'm an example for myself. Now, I may look at someone else's journey and go, wow, you know, I might, I might try to do some of those things or, or get some advice from them on how I could look at something, but I'm never going to look at somebody else. And I had to learn this. I don't ever look at anyone else anymore and go, gosh, they've really got it figured out. They're better than me. Because it's so self-defeating. I really look at it like that person's life is their journey. However they handle things is their soul's path. And it is not for me to compare what I do and how I handle things to it. Cause if you don't do that, welcome to shaming yourself, <laughs> judgment and having a harder time getting to a more peaceful place for yourself. You just said so many important things in that <laughs> sentence. I'm like, I'm sitting here trying to remember them all for, and listen to you at the same time, which was very challenging. So, so thank you for all that information. But a couple things. One of the things that popped into my head as you were sharing that is this is why peer support is so important, right? Because you can Absolutely. you can witness somebody else's journey through trauma and you might be able to say, oh my gosh, I want to try that. Or, oh, I didn't think, I never thought about thinking of it this way. So maybe I can think of this situation that way and maybe that'll help me. So the, the, the peer support is definitely a part of it. The other thing that you mentioned is that you can't compare yourself to any other person right. because you're an eight. You've had a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Somebody else who may not have had any may go through the exact same situation very differently. And if I compare me to them, then shame. I'm opening the door for shame. And yes. shame means something is wrong with me. That's what shame is. Something is wrong with me. I'm not enough. I'm yes. broken. I'm not good. There's something I'm, in me. I'm, yeah, there's something in me that I just don't. This is the thing I think about when... And it's a fine line because I understand that, yes, yoga, meditation, running, exercise, eating right, going to therapy, what all those things like can help you get through life in general, as well as tra trauma and traumatic 
events, whether you're a kid and they happened or you're an adult and they happen. However, <laughs> there's this other side of that where I'm like, I can't go to something where the tone of the conversation is, if you would just get off your ass like me and run <laughs> every day, you would be living a better life and you'd look better and people would resonate more because of how you look or because you not only run a network and do this and do that, but you also are a triathlete. You know, there's that whole like self-defeating thing. And I'm sorry, but people that have struggled with depression, like self-defeating thoughts, that's, that is your mantra when you're in depression. <laughs> but I think that's why these conversations are so important because I may have never experienced that kind of depression and I may run and that may really work for me. But I need to have an understanding, a general understanding of mental and emotional health and human capacity and compassion to know just because that works for me doesn't mean it would work for you. So if I get into a conversation with another survivor, I might be able to say, hey, this is what really worked for me. And they might say, oh, I tried that. That was awful. Or they might say, oh, I've never tried that. Let me try it. Right. But it depends on the delivery and yes. the, the absence of judgment. So I, you know, the third thing I was going to say about what you shared is not only can I not compare myself to you, whether or not you run or do yoga or go to therapy and what I do or don't do, but I also can't compare myself to who I was before yes. the incident happened. Oh, good point. Such a great point. When I, I can tell you for me, I really thought I was the strongest person I knew. So <laughs> one of the things I said to my therapist over and over again was, I feel so weak. I feel so weak. I feel so weak because I was not going to let anybody see me cry. I didn't utter the words Boston Marathon like as little as possible <laughs> because right. if you didn't know that, if you didn't know me and know I was there, then there was no need to tell you because <laughs> then right. you might ask me a question. Right. So I think that that, that comparison to who I was before this happened was really hard for me to let mm. go of, to be vulnerable, to ask for help, to cry, <laughs> to wow. share with somebody what I thought about or went through, you know, and, and I think I'm going to go back to the word strong and I'll talk about myself. I think as a strong person, one of the things I wanted to do was protect people in my life. That's what strong people do. I'm a therapist. I have a, I walk around as a giant vat where you can put all your stuff and I'll hold it <laughs> and you can leave it in my office. So, exactly. right? so I think that that's what I've done in training as a mental health professional. I was a triathlete runner. I have a large capacity to tolerate discomfort and pain you have to, to ride your bike for a hundred miles when it's right. 95 degrees outside. Right. right. So I had these capacities in me, which made me feel like I'm a really strong person and strong people don't have these reactions. I mm -hmm. think similarly, EMTs, emergency room doctors, nurses, police officers feel that way as well because we protect people as mental health, as helpers, people that are helpers protect people, right? So 
I think it was hard to say, I am really sad or this really bothers me, or I don't understand why I feel like this, or how come right. these behaviors are happening in my life. But, you know, again, I'll say the last piece of that I, I took from what you shared was having that therapist, or that person, professional mentor, peer support person to talk to helps put it all into context in a way where you can make sense of it. And the information can be useful and helpful. And it could help you think about your experiences differently so that you can grow out of them. And make sense? Yes. And I just, I'm having this flash while you're talking and this, uh, some, a light bulb went off for me or not. It wasn't in my mind. Actually, it was in my heart, um, oh, uh, which makes that's me pretty. cry. So I will try to get through this saying, pencil, paperclip, rhino in my head so that I stay out of the cry place in my brain so that I can tell you what I'm going to tell you. That's a trick I use when I'm doing a public speaking thing because I get up and talk about like sexual abuse or whatever. And I sometimes, sometimes depends on what's happening in my life. I usually can do the whole thing and like never really cry. I can get emotional, but I can do it without crying because it happened a long, you know, I was like a little kid. So, but ever so often, something for whatever reason, I'll cry. And there, another therapist told me just start saying random shit. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you explained the pencil paper clip rhino thing. Cause I wasn't sure where we were going to go with that one. <laughs> so anyway, I, 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 in your head, you know, I didn't say it out loud in front of the crowd, but in my head, as I'm delivering a message, I'll say to myself, doorknob, paper clip, pencil, eraser fingernail as I'm doing my talk, because that literally like scientifically, it moves you out of the part of your brain where you want to cry and moves you so that you can get through your speech because you are, it's kind of like how tapping works, mm -hmm. you know, when people talk about EFT, but anyway, so that's a whole windy road. I just went down and that's ADHD <laughs> talking for you, my friends. Um, the thing that I got out of what you were saying is this understanding around people who are athletes in terms of, uh, you know, being able to do a triathlon, being able to run a marathon, being able to, it made me go, Oh, wow. Right. There's this other side to that, that could make things more difficult for some to be vulnerable and to struggle because you're this athlete, mm -hmm. you're able to get through a freaking marathon and yet you're struggling emotionally. I don't know. It just gave me this well of compassion um, and me to stop looking at some of those things, like wherever my hidden judgment may still have lived about myself looking at someone who does that and feeling inadequate. Now I can look at it and be like, looking at it a different way, more compassionately, because being that physically strong and then having things that hit you, that your physical strength doesn't, isn't the first thing that's going to help you get through this emotional thing. That's got to be a trip. Yes. And thank you for articulating that. Um, it is 
very much a story that I relate to. <laughs> so as an endurance athlete, in on the front forks of my bike, inside one side is painted never quit. Mm. And on the other side is painted never give up. So I had a custom bike built, right? Whatever it was 10 years ago. And um, they do a custom paint job. And I was like, I don't care what color it is, but I want this mantra painted where I can see it. Mm. when I'm riding. So if I was riding and I was up over my, I'll give you an example. I was in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a, literally like a hundred degrees and it was an Ironman event. And I would look at my bike forks and it would keep my mm. mind out of this place. It's your pencil rhino paperclip yes. thing, <laughs> but exactly. it's the, right. It's the same mantra that would keep me in this mindset in this place of being able to continue to move forward no matter what was happening. Yes. So yes, for me, after the marathon bombing, when my emotional life penetrated my then resilience, right, of being able mm -hmm. to push, 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 when I couldn't push over it anymore, and it had to be about, you know, in my mind, was being weak, but really it's about being vulnerable or human. I'm not saying it's weak, but it, right. but for me, that shift, that's what it felt like. I do think that there is a plane of consciousness, probably much like the survivors, the Parkland survivors that were speaking out, you know, in anti-NRA or, um, news yeah. venues and in Washington and at the marches, there's a plane of consciousness a person's in. It could be called a state of numb. It could be a plane of consciousness, probably similar to an abuse survivor. Absolutely. That you sort of move in this plane until something disrupts it, whether it's insight, whether it's another trigger or another event. So I think that that's one of the things that makes dealing with um, communities that have suffered mass casualty so challenging. Everybody's on a different plane. Yes. And this every one thinks, single person. Yes. Every single person. And this one thinks this would help. And this one thinks this would help. And this one can't bear to look at it. So they just want to turn away. Everybody's somewhere different. And it's such an incredibly... Uh, overwhelming undertaking to try to figure out how do we come into these communities or how do we rally these survivors and be able to give them all something that they need. I don't, I mean, cause like you said, we all have our own biases or understandings or feelings yeah. about, you know, what's happening. I just want to share with you quickly, cause I think this is really interesting. The, this goes back to your plane, your, um, the runners athletes thing. So I think I, what I learned about myself over time is that I really lived in a semi numb plane for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I think being exposed to trauma all the time through work as a mental health professional, my own early life experiences that contributed to that. And then the marathon bombing, I think because I was in that plane, I could do things like run marathons and do the Ironman and take on things. Interestingly, uh, the first year after the marathon bombing, I went back and I ran 
and I had a great race. The second year I went back and I ran and I ran a great race. The third year I went back. Now, you know, if you think about the fact that I was in treatment during this whole time, the third year I went back and I was starting to struggle. And I was also sort of going through things very differently emotionally about my own experience. And I, I had a, I had a, a bad race and I didn't do well. The next year I went back and I barely could run the marathon at all. Mm. And I went back to my therapist and I said, it makes no sense. I was trained. I know what I'm doing. I've done it five times. Like it makes no sense. And I think emotionally, I was not in a place to even be able to be in that headspace to keep pushing through things. Everything else in my life was breaking through. I was not able to push it away. There was just too much physically. Uh, it was really incredible. There's more. I we don't have enough time, but there's this is there's, a whole. This is a whole. Uh, we ha we have to do a follow up. We will do a follow up. Yeah, to there's this a show really because, interesting um, yeah. ending to that. The fifth year, which was last year, I decided I can't even go back. Yeah. I'm not even going. I just like bailed at the last minute and canceled my reservations and didn't go. And I think that, again, that's very reflective of where I was in my own process and why I couldn't go. So it's. And that is okay. I think we, that is okay. we do not allow people to be human. And many of us don't even understand what being human really is. You know, I, I, I've looked at the amount of emotional stuff and emotional and psychological abuse and sexual abuse and whatever that I've had to deal with and then had it permeate into my life and morph into other ways of coping and whatever. And for me, the the amount of physical energy that it has taken me many times to just deal with the emotional stuff meant that I could barely take a walk. Right. And that's okay. Like, right. That's okay. And I, you know, thank you for sharing that because I think that is something that, you know, on one hand, trauma is trauma is trauma, right? Mm -hmm. You're talking about overcoming, um, having to go through a sexual abuse versus a traumatization of mass violence. Right. But there's days when you can barely take a walk mm -hmm. and that is just trauma. That's there's right. things about each individual journey that I don't understand what it feels like to be in school and to feel hunted. Yeah. I don't know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be running down the street full of pride that I qualified and I'm running the Boston Marathon and for an explosion to go off. Right. I do know what it's like to have to put your world back together when everything changes in a split second. And I think those nuggets of what we all can under relate to each other's journey on is, are the connection pieces. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you this piece. And I know we're, we definitely are going to do another show, but let me ask you this piece. Um, 
how much of the grieving process is, this is a dumb way to put it. Obviously, everybody, um, if they're self-aware or they're ready to get here, grieves the person they were before whatever it is happened, happened. Maybe not everybody does. Maybe they didn't like the person they were before. But if you did before any kind of traumatic event, there's that's a whole other piece is the grief around I'm not that same person that I was. I handle things differently. Some things are easier to handle because I have this new insight and this thing that cracked open my soul and my heart and my whole life. But then I also can't handle other things that I used to just breeze by, like you're not being able to do the race as well years later. How much of that process for you with grieving your old self was in your awareness? That's such a great question. Um, I liked how you put it into the cracks of your soul. Uh, I, I did write a talk for something I'm involved with. And part of what I wrote about is that there's this complete annihilation of who you were or how you see yourself. And the way that that presents in people is, is very different. I mean, some people end up with drinking problems, right? Some people end up, their marriages fail. So there's so many, some families that go through what the Parkland or Sandy Hook families go through break apart. So there's so many different ways that we're sort of annihilated by what's happened. I think for me, I absolutely went through a massive grieving process of how I had always known myself to be. And the person that I thought I was before that incident before that moment in time definitely has I've had to re um, restructure how I saw myself and kind of reemerge consciously mm-hmm. that I'm not who I always thought I was anymore for a lot of different reasons some of it's just belief system some of it was right. behavioral some of it's Age, emotional wisdom time yeah yeah <laughs> but again like and we can't even go into it now because it's too massive. But when you talk about like your, who you were before this, your, your childhood, your adverse childhood events, your, your experiences, the sum of the person that you are before a life-changing moment in time, often that person we, we do mourn because there is an involvement that has to come with reemerging. You know things, you think things, you feel things, and there's some things that you will never ever see the same again. And it's good Absolutely. and bad. <laughs> yeah, and you do like I I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like, well, you know, um, I'm in a I'm in a good place. I, you know, I I feel in so much of a good place within my heart and my soul and how I talk to myself and how I see the world and stuff. I, I feel really good. And so in this space, I look at all these things that I've um, been through from the benign to, you know, not great stuff and think, oh, I'm, I don't really mourn that person anymore be, that what that you know was the before or wonder well if this event hadn't happened 
my life would have been so different as if my life would have been better. I don't think that way anymore. Um, and that's really nice for me because I did spend a long time, you know, with in, in those spaces and I can visit that if I'm having not a great <laughs> day or something, right. but it is in my home. And I think, um, I think that that's what, uh, that's a nice place to kind of get to is where you, you know, you go, well, had that not have happened, I wouldn't be doing all this other stuff that I really feel like makes a difference for, to myself, to other people, uh, makes a difference in the world, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to anymore be angry or bitter or resentful in, in no way am I using those as shaming words because I deserve to be angry, bitter, and resentful about some things right. for at least a while. But to um, to have that space um, be looked at so differently now and ever increasingly as I get older is really nice. But I think that's what resilience is. Yes. That's what I believe resilience to be. You have reemerged a new version of you because of everything that you went through. Yeah. But that process is having to redefine how I feel about myself, how I look at my life past, how I'm, how I'm thinking about my tomorrow, how I value and judge myself and others. And others. And, yeah. We yeah. just twins. Yeah. We just I mean, said it's, the same thing. Yeah. It's really, it's really, really, but these kinds of this conversation that we're having today, this kind of information, when I think about Parkland one year later, you know, it'll be the six years later for Boston in April and all the other commemorations and anniversaries and that we come upon over the year. It's about being actively engaged in this process and yes. being actively engaged doesn't mean it's always going to be good and it's not right. always going to be bad. But if we're if we're open to the evolvement and if we're open and if the world is less judgmental and more compassionate, yes. then I'm hoping that we'll have less wounded souls and more people healing and learning and sharing for the next, unfortunately, for the next one until there's some exactly. global change. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Tell our listeners. <laughs> Because <laughs> we are, I promise, listeners, we're going to have more shows with Amy. Um, tell our listeners where they can find out about you and also the organization that you're working with. Sure. I, the most important resource I want to make sure your listeners hear is the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center, the NMVVRC.org. That organization is um, out there exactly for days like tomorrow. If anybody's triggered in any way by any event, this website has information on, um, on mass violence, resources for self-help, resources to locate victims' assistance, um, all kinds of information, free, easily accessible, readily available. So that's on their website, very easy to use. And there's obviously you can always contact the professional staff there as well. So the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center, and then individually, um, amyconeal.com. 
and I still see some clients in private practice. And I also do speaking engagements and consulting on lived and learned experience on um, resilience and reemerging post violence. Yes. And I want to make sure everybody knows how to spell Amy's name. So it's A-M-Y-O-N-E-I-L-L.com, right? Yes. Okay. Amy C. There's a C in there. Oh, Amy C-O-N-E-I-L-L.com. Um, that is correct. Oh, Amy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You will, you know, you know, you're a welcome guest anytime. And you know what? I just want to thank you for being willing to continue to have such really difficult conversations about hate, terrorism, victimization, and the violence that's happening um, in our country. Because as you can tell, just from our conversation of two random people whose paths cross, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people that are living with different levels and kinds of victimization, and we need to figure out how to help and support each other better. Absolutely. And, you know, you have to know, I live and breathe in these kind of conversations. Like I don't (laughs) get invited to dinner parties because they want to talk about home design, which is fantastic. I love home design. But then I'll drop some kind of bombshell. Like I just did a show about Munchausen by proxy about this woman who was abusing her kid. And people are like, can we get back to talking about home design? And I'm not saying they're shallow because of that. I'm just saying I know. I literally live and breathe in this stuff. Now it's I do the same thing. Live, you know? I know. I'll go to tell a story and my kids are like, is it going to be sad? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> only in the beginning. Because in the end, the story is amazing. Because people are incredible and resilient and they rise. And they're like, yeah. They're like, yeah, okay, thanks, mom. Can, I'm we're hungry. They're, now. they're like, They're like, we're just hungry. We have more food. <laughs> Oh, okay. Thank you so, so thank much. You. For, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to some really important discussions. You know that we always at least try to have this one is one of those on Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show.
Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight. Good boy.